Hello, this is Dr. David Friedman, host of To Your Good Health Radio. Today we're talking about the most common affliction affecting people, fatigue and exhaustion. According to the National Safety Council, 43% of Americans are too tired to think clearly at work, make informed decisions, and be productive. It's not just the baby boomers that are feeling run down. A study from the American Psychological Association reports that millennials are the most stressed out and tired generation. People of all ages, they're turning to these quick fixes like caffeine, sugar, stimulants, and energy drinks. Unfortunately, these can wreak havoc on our hormones and lead to an array of unhealthy conditions. Joining us today is Ari Witten, a renowned energy and fatigue specialist who focuses on evidence-based approach to energy enhancement. If you're sick and tired of feeling sick and tired, you're in the right place. Don't go anywhere. The yawning stops now. It's To Your Good Health Radio with number one best-selling author and renowned wellness expert, Dr. David Friedman, changing lives just for the health of it. Our next guest is a number one best-selling author of several cutting-edge books, including Forever Fat Loss, The Low-Carb Myth, and his latest, The Ultimate Guide to Red Light Therapy. He has a Bachelor's of Science from San Diego State University in kinesiology with a specialization in fitness, nutrition, and health. He also holds two advanced certifications from the National Academy of Sports Medicine and a PhD in clinical psychology. He hosts the popular Energy Blueprint podcast, which brings together the world's leading experts on the subject of fatigue and energy enhancement. He spent the last five years developing the Energy Blueprint, which is the most comprehensive program in the world on the science of overcoming fatigue and increasing energy. Welcome to the show, someone that I refer to as my brilliant brother from another mother, Ari Witten. Thank you so much, my friend. It's such a pleasure to be on. Oh, it's great having you. I've been looking forward to this interview, and then you and I share a similar no-nonsense, common science meets common sense approach that I just don't see from many of the guests that I interview, so I've been looking forward to this. First, share with us what got you interested in researching the cause of fatigue and helping people restore their energy levels. Yeah, well, I'll give you the the super short version. So um, I've been studying health for a very long time, health, nutrition, fitness, literally since I was 13 or 14 years old. Uh, For typical teenage boy reasons, I was, you know, into bodybuilding and fitness. I wanted abs and biceps, and my older brother was a bodybuilder and mentored by professional bodybuilders. He was also a personal trainer, and so I was kind of very deep into that world since, you know, like most young boys with an older brother. I admired mine. I wanted to have big muscles like my older brother. And um, so I started obsessively studying nutrition and, you know, and fitness and biomechanics and and exercise physiology from from the time I was a little kid. And I I, I had a gift for it, I I would say. I, I think that I was uniquely able to understand a lot of, you know, college level and, and more advanced research from the time I was 14 or 15. Right. And, um, and, and that was my world for many years. I did a, a bachelor's degree in kinesiology, um, went on to be a personal trainer and nutritionist for many years and, and was, was doing health coaching. Um, and then in my mid twenties, I got, uh, mononucleosis from Epstein-Barr virus and it kind of rocked my world, you know, coming yeah. from, I'd been an athlete, I'd been this fit, healthy guy my whole life. And then I 
had all of this energy and life force stripped out of me. I lost like 35 pounds of, of muscle because I couldn't yeah. eat because my throat was so swollen and painful. And, uh, and then what was worse is that after it, I was severely chronically fatigued for about six months. And that was a big thing that really shifted my focus away from the world of just fitness and body composition, fat loss and muscle gain to really uh, an interest in health and longevity and disease more broadly, but especially the science of energy levels. Why, why do people get chronically fatigued? What's going on in the body and how do we increase our energy levels? And so, you know, for almost 10 years now, I've been obsessed with studying and teaching the science of human energy levels. Yeah, I'd, I'd say that's probably the biggest complaint I hear at my office from patients is lack of energy. They're always tired. And so many of them, they come into my office after seeing their naturopath, acupuncturist, or practitioners of applied kinesiology with the diagnosis of adrenal fatigue. Share with us, is this a real disorder? Uh, is the reason everybody's so tired is because our adrenal glands fatigued? Yeah, great question. So um, this is something that I literally have about four hours of lecture online, um, you know, on YouTube and, and very long, almost book length articles right. on my website. So I'm going to do my best to uh, summarize a huge portion of my life and a huge amount of research uh -huh. into uh, into just a few minutes here. But um, this was actually part of my story. I left it out of my, my original story. This was part of the reason I do what I do is I had been studying natural health, holistic health and nutrition for, for over a decade um, by the time I got hit by Epstein-Barr virus and had this, this bout right. with chronic fatigue. And, um, and I was a devout proponent and believer in the whole adrenal fatigue thing. I, I figured, you know, there's thousands of articles that people have written on this subject. There's dozens of books people have written on it. Of course, it's got to be real. Right. Um, and, and some of my mentors and people I learned from and looked up to were talking about it. So, you know, I figured it was totally real. And it, it really, it was kind of a shock to me when I discovered that within conventional medicine, they brush off the whole thing of adrenal fatigue as total nonsense. They do not consider it a legitimate medical condition or a legitimate diagnosis of any kind. And, you know, the uh, there's a a well-known institute that represents 14,000 endocrinologist MDs, and they've come out publicly and stated, this is pretty much a direct quote, um, adrenal fatigue does not exist. There are no facts to support the idea that chronic stress wears out our adrenals and results in many common symptoms um, like, like low levels of energy and sleep problems and cravings and things like that, the, the symptoms that are claimed for adrenal fatigue. Um, and so I was actually irked by that, I, I, given that I was a believer in adrenal fatigue. So I had this idea that I was going to prove them wrong, and I was going to dig into all the research and show that adrenal fatigue actually is supported by the scientific evidence, and it's, it is a real thing. So I spent uh, a good few weeks digging into the literature, and, um, and what I found really kind of shocked me, and I didn't know what to do with it. I found a lot of studies that were basically saying that they'd compare people with fatigue versus normal healthy people, and they'd look at their cortisol levels and adrenal function, and they would detect no, no discernible difference um, between fatigued people and, and healthy people. And so I said, oh, okay, well, you know, maybe I'll look a little harder. And I kept digging into the literature and found a few studies that maybe could support the idea here and there, but then I kept finding really a lot of studies that didn't fit with the whole narrative. And 
And so I ended up saying, you know, I'm going to dig into this literature and find literally every study in existence that has ever been done testing adrenal function, HPA axis function, which is hypothalamus, pituitary, adrenal axis function, um, cortisol levels in people with various fatigue syndromes versus normal healthy people. And I'm just going to find every study that's ever been done like that, compile all the data, and just lay out the data and see what all the, the, the entire body of scientific evidence says. So I spent literally over six months of my life just buried in the literature on this subject, and I ended up doing the most comprehensive review of the scientific literature on the subject that's ever been done. I say that definitively because I've looked at everything else that's out there. And um, here's ultimately what I found. You know, it's kind of reduced six months of my life down to a few sentences. Um, there were 79 studies in total from 1995 to 2000. I've updated it through 2019 now. Right. Um, 20 of those are literature reviews where scientists actually study the other studies and kind of compile the data. So I did kind of a grand overarching um, review of the entire body of evidence, including those 20 other studies put together by or what are called meta-analyses or systematic literature reviews put together by other scientists. And, um, and then there's 59 individual studies, and those are mostly the kind that I just described. So again, take people with a fatigue syndrome, whether chronic fatigue syndrome, whether burnout syndrome, stress-related exhaustion disorder, there's a few different names for these conditions. Measure their cortisol levels at different times of the day and compare that with, you know, uh, age-matched healthy people uh, of the same gender, same age, control for confounding variables, and so on, and see if there's a difference. See if, you know, the adrenal fatigue theory is supported. And if it is, the prediction is very simple, right? It's you should detect that the people with these fatigue syndromes have abnormal cortisol levels. You have exhausted adrenal glands and lower cortisol levels. And of those 59 studies, here's how they break down. Basically, none of them actually supported the idea that there is any kind of inability of the adrenals to produce enough cortisol. There were 15 that supported slightly lower morning cortisol levels, specifically in the morning, um, still not even abnormal, but slightly lower compared to uh, normal, healthy people. There were 11 that showed the opposite finding, slightly higher morning cortisol levels in the people with fatigue compared to normal, healthy people. And then the vast majority of the studies, 33 of the 59 studies, showed no discernible difference whatsoever between the people with the fatigue syndrome versus normal, healthy people in terms of their cortisol level. So in other words, if you were to take, uh, you know, 100 cortisol uh, lab measurements of various people, 50 of whom had full-blown debilitating fatigue and 50 of whom were perfectly normal, healthy people, and you handed all of those 100 cortisol test results to a a believer, a proponent of adrenal fatigue, so say a naturopath who who diagnoses people with adrenal fatigue, and and you say, um, tell me which of these 50 cortisol results is from the people with fatigue and tell me which 50 is from the normal or from the normal healthy people. That person would have, as much as they swear they can diagnose people with adrenal fatigue based on those cortisol measurements, that person would have as good of chance as getting that right as basically flipping a coin. Jeez. 
So you went in to actually prove it was true, and you found the opposite. Correct. Wow, that's that's so. so it, it, that's yeah. definitely a, so, so your mind. Your mind would change. What about cortisol and belly fat connection? Is that still legit? Yeah, I mean, there's there's real effects from cortisol. I mean, we know, for example, uh, that you know you can have Addison's disease. Addison's disease mm-hmm. is a real condition of adrenal right. insufficiency. It has no relationship to this idea of adrenal fatigue, but is a real right. condition where people have very low cortisol levels, and it absolutely causes side effects of many different kinds to to have that. Um, there's also the opposite. There's a disease called Cushing's disease where you have chronically elevated cortisol levels. And that absolutely contributes to insulin resistance and fat gain uh, and a number of other symptoms. So, yeah, cortisol, uh, you know, I should be clear that cortisol does have roles to play in the body and it does have right. effects. And you can have imbalanced cortisol levels or and, and there's a few different ways this can present. It can present most commonly either as chronically elevated cortisol levels. And that's what is associated with most diseases and um, as well as just chronic stress more broadly. And, uh, and, and you can also have um, what's also common is, is a, a flattened diurnal curve. So you can have lowered morning, uh, morning cortisol levels, right. and then you can have elevated evening cortisol levels. So uh, to be a little bit more specific, cortisol follows what's called a diurnal curve or diurnal pattern of release. We get a burst of cortisol over the first few hours of the day, and then it declines over the rest of the day into the night. So we have high levels in the morning, low levels in the evening and, and night. Um, a flattened diurnal curve is too low of cortisol in the morning and usually elevated cortisol in the evening as well. And so that pattern um, can also contribute to a variety of symptoms. But I'd say the most common thing, if you know, if you look at, and I've, I've also done a review of the literature on this, um, but if you look at various diseases, whether heart disease, neurological diseases, uh, hypothyroidism, chronic pain, uh, even in different kinds of chronic stressors, whether cigarette smoking, chronic alcohol consumption, um, the, almost every disease that you look, look at, if mm-hmm. there is a connection with cortisol, it is in relationship to chronically elevated levels of cortisol. And as I said, that, that chronically elevated levels of cortisol can be linked with insulin resistance. It can also be linked with neurodegeneration and, and a variety of other um, negative effects. However, mm-hmm. just to make it clear, looping it back into what I described about adrenal fatigue, what all of that research makes clear about it, the, the idea of adrenal fatigue, if you can't, if most of the people with these chronic fatigue conditions have perfectly normal cortisol levels, we know that this the symptoms of fatigue are not being caused by abnormal cortisol levels or adrenal function. Great. So you've debunked that. So that's not the reason. Now, what have you found is the reason? I know you and I've talked about uh, uh, vitamin D zapping people's energy levels. How is that? you feel that's a big issue of why people just have lethargic all the time? Yeah. So the way I break it down is I would say there's six, roughly six, maybe seven big contributors to uh, fatigue conditions. And they're different for different people. So I'll give you a, a quick overview of some of the biggest factors. One is circadian rhythm disruption. Mm-hmm. This is our, the biological clock in our brain that regulates our sleep and wake cycles. And it has a direct impact through many different mechanisms that we could talk about 
uh, on our energy levels. It influences neurotransmitters in the brain, hormones in the body. It influences mitochondrial function in a very profound way. Um, so that's one big topic. I mean, we could talk for five hours on that alone. Yeah. Um, another big topic, of course, your neck of the woods, nutrition. Nutrition mm-hmm. is a huge factor in people's energy levels. Of course, if you eat lots of processed junk, you're going to have nutritional deficiencies, nutritional toxicities. You're going to have uh, poor gut health. You're going to have chronic inflammation. And we know that inflammation, for example, directly shuts down uh, and decreases energy production in the mitochondria, which are our cellular energy generators that are producing um, 90 plus percent of the energy powering the cells of our body. Mm-hmm. Uh, we also know that gut health is a big factor. Uh, and if you have gut permeability and, and gut dysbiosis, there's several different mechanisms that's that, that that's going to contribute to uh, low energy production in your cells. We also know that um, toxicants, man-made toxins or toxicants in the environment uh, can also contribute to fatigue. So, for example, heavy metal exposure. So if you're getting exposed to lead and mercury and, um, and things like aluminum and arsenic, um, those metals are directly toxic to mitochondrial function. So they're directly suppressing the ability of your cells to produce energy in your brain, in your body, in your skeletal muscles, in your internal organs. Um, we also, I mean, um, among other negative effects. They can be toxic in other ways as well. Uh, things like BPA also shut down mitochondrial function as well as disrupting hormones in your body. Um, phthalates and many, I mean, benzene and formaldehyde and air pollutants, there's a whole range of different toxicants that, um, that can decrease our body's ability to produce energy. Um, Certainly brain health, the way we operate our brain and, you know, everything from our mindset to the nutrients that we're putting into our body um, Mm -hmm. and how we're balancing neurotransmitter levels in the brain, uh, as well as our behaviors, you know, and whether we're chronically stressed and sleep deprived and go, 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 always trying to work and we're type A personality workaholic and we're always stressed out and anxious or whether we learn how to integrate relaxation and de-stressing de-stressing rituals and uh, and meditation into our days and things like that. Um, and we also know a few other factors I'll mention. Certainly immune dysfunction and chronic infections can be a factor oftentimes in very severe cases of like debilitating chronic fatigue syndrome. Uh, and then a couple other ones that I'll mention, one is light. And there's five different bioactive wavelengths of light that we could talk about that affect our our cellular and hormonal and neurotransmitter function in multiple different ways. Um, So it's not just vitamin D, but sunlight is extremely important, um, not only for vitamin D, but many mechanisms that go beyond vitamin D. And uh, and then the final one I'll say is is something called hormesis, which is transient metabolic stressors. So things like exercise, fasting, heat exposure like saunas, uh, cold exposure, um, different kinds of phytonutrients from, from plant foods. All of those things act at the mitochondrial level as short-term transient stressors, which actually help stimulate those mitochondria to grow bigger and stronger and ultimately make them more capable of producing even more energy. So for most people dealing with fatigue, it's usually some combination of at least two or three of those factors that I just mentioned. 
Yeah, you did mention one that, that seems to get me in the fall or winter months. I know you wrote this amazing book called The Ultimate Guide to Red Light Therapy. And again, that's a, that's a whole show on its own. But, you know, many people, including me, we suffer from the SAD, that seasonal affective disorder. And with the fall and winter months upon us, what can you recommend to those that are limited to the amount of sunshine they get? Yeah, great question. So um, seasonal affective disorder is best understood through the lens of the circadian rhythm. And again, the circadian rhythm is this clock in our brain. It's, it's in this part of the brain called the suprachiasmatic nucleus. And there are several different factors that influence this circadian clock. Um, the main ones are light, uh, food timing, food, so your, your, your food intake, um, movement, as well as temperature. But the main one is light. Those factors influence this circadian clock, which in turn regulates and influences uh, things like neurotransmitter levels, so like serotonin and dopamine and GABA and another one called orectin, which is our primary wakefulness and energy neurotransmitter. Right. So just through that mechanism alone, they're having a profound effect on our mood and our energy levels. Um, we also know that it influences hormones. Uh, we all, so testosterone, cortisol, several other different hormones. Uh, we also know that it influences directly in, in very profound ways our mitochondrial health and literally helps uh, engage mechanisms that protect our mitochondria from damage and regulate their ability to produce energy at the cellular level. So seasonal affective disorder is like what happens when you live in a place where you're getting inadequate light exposure, when light through the eyes that feeds into the circadian clock in our brain is the primary signal that sets that circadian clock that regulates it and allows it to regulate all those other mechanisms I just explained, the neurotransmitters, the hormones, the mitochondria. So if the inputs, the environmental inputs into that circadian system are not optimal, so for example, you live in the Pacific Northwest and you're not getting much sunlight for a big chunk of the year, what happens is that circadian rhythm gets blunted and then all of those different mechanisms from neurotransmitters to hormones to mitochondria, are getting dysregulated. So you get mood problems, you get energy problems, um, you get sleep problems. And um, the, the best way to deal with that is, first of all, if you live in a place where you can get sunlight, get it. Don't be one of the 99.9% .9 of, of people living in the modern world that live in sunny places or places with adequate, adequate sunlight that are still indoors all day under man-made mm -hmm. lighting looking at computer screens. Mm -hmm. if, you're in that, if you're in that environment, uh, you are going to have diff you're going to have trouble with your circadian rhythm and you're going to experience negative effects on your energy, your mood, and your sleep. Um, but for people specifically living in environments where they genuinely can't get enough outdoor sun, so like the Pacific Northwest, like Scandinavia, like some of these very extreme northern or southern latitudes, um, the, the best way to deal with it is through bright light therapy. Uh, and so you can get a, a white, sometimes blue. They also make blue lights, but I recommend more of a, a white light um, that is at least 10,000 lux, which is a measurement of light intensity, and use that for at least 10 minutes, but ideally more like 20 or 30 minutes in the morning, uh, and shine that light into your eyes to set the circadian rhythm and make up for the fact 
that that you live in a place that that doesn't have adequate light exposure outdoors. So if you get one of those lights, it's a very simple solution. There's very good evidence to show that it works, uh, mm-hmm. that it improves mood and energy levels and sleep in profound ways. The best time to do that in the morning? Yeah, within 30 minutes of waking up, ideally. Yeah, so if people could get, you know, you bring up such a good point about the iPhones, the computer screens, TV sets, video games. We're so into that, myself included. But if more people just sat outside for 20 minutes in the sun, would that improve most people's energy level? Just that? Yeah, so, well, there's a, there's a, several nuances to this. But um, if they just got outdoors within the first 30 minutes of waking up and mm-hmm. got 10 or 20 minutes of bright light, uh, ideally sunlight, you know, like kind of direct sunlight into their mm-hmm. eyes, uh, yeah, it would have a profound effect at improving their energy levels and their mood and their brain function, um, their ability to feel joy and pleasure in life and their sleep, just that thing alone. Now, if you also got tw- some sunlight during the day, like let's say in the middle of the day or the afternoon, let's say you sunbathed and took a nap for 20 minutes, that also profoundly influences energy levels through a variety of other mechanisms that don't even have anything to do with the circadian rhythm. So we know that uh, light exposure also influences neurotransmitter levels like dopamine and serotonin um, through non-circadian rhythm mechanisms. And in fact, there's even um, some degree of a, a skin pathway where we actually synthesize compounds directly in our skin that influence neurotransmitters in our brain. There's a Uh, serotonin production that can happen through sunlight exposure on the skin, as well as actually um, uh, not an an opioid, it's not an, um, I'm thinking opioid, but it's, uh, sorry, sorry, endorphin. That's the Mm -hmm. word I'm I'm looking on. It's part of the the opiate system of uh, the endogenous opiate system of the body. But um, our, our skin can also produce beta endorphins, which also feed back into the brain where they influence uh, neurotransmitter levels. That's actually why people get addicted to tanning beds. You know, using tanning beds can actually be an addictive thing. And it's, mm-hmm. it's because your skin is actually producing endorphins that are getting into your bloodstream that basically are feel-good chemicals, as well as this serotonin pathway. Uh, so we're directly influencing neurotransmitters in the brain by doing this. At the same time, there's the vitamin D aspect. Vitamin D is not only important for skeletal health, but we know it's, it's vitally important for immune health, and there's a huge amount of research showing that it impacts uh, numerous systems of the body and, and helps regulate over 2,000 diff- the expression of over 2,000 different genes in the body. Um, so I won't go into depth on vitamin D because most people already know that story. Right. There's also another compound called cholesterol sulfate that mm-hmm. we synthesize in our skin in response to um, UV exposure. And cholesterol sulfate helps build up as negative charge on our uh, red blood cells and helps them repel each other uh, more effectively, which instead of clumping together, they spread out and they repel each other in something called zeta potential. And uh, basically, that makes the blood flow smoother and it helps with oxygen delivery to your cells. There's another aspect called the melanocortin system, which is... Uh, shockingly, almost unknown by most people, most, most, most health experts, but it's a really important system that uh, regulates um, 
in, regulates inflammation and regulates um, immune function and uh, actually has a profound impact on our food intake. So this is why we see, for example, this, this link between uh, sunlight exposure and or lack of sunlight exposure and obesity is because mm-hmm. that light exposure is directly impacting on uh, brain centers and hormones that are impacting on our hunger levels and our food intake. Um, and then one, a couple other things I'll mention, there's something called far infrared, which basically helps blood circulation. There's far infrared saunas that uh, help us sweat and detoxify. The sun mm-hmm. also has that effect of dilating blood vessels and, and helping to sweat, which is an important detoxification mechanism. And then there's uh, red and near infrared light. And that's the subject of my book, The Ultimate Guide to Red Light Therapy. And those red and near infrared light photons actually penetrate, you know, unlike most other wavelengths of light that kind of really go only skin deep, the red and near infrared light can penetrate inches deep into our body where they're directly interacting with our mitochondria, stimulating energy production. They're also acting as a form of hormesis, stimulating mitochondrial growth and these these energy generators to grow bigger and stronger. And they're actually modulating they're basically, the mitochondria are picking these set these photons of light up, and they're translating them into signals, which they then send these signals back to the the nucleus of the cell, which contains our genes, and they modulate gene expression. So they and there's a variety of different ways they do this, but they shut down, for example, chronic pro-inflammatory signaling. They right. upregulate the expression of um, genes involved in our internal antioxidant defense system, and they modulate local growth factors. So if you shine this light on your, on your muscle cells, for example, they increase muscle protein synthesis or muscle growth and local growth factors in the muscle. If you shine it on your, uh, your brain, they increase things like nerve growth factor and brain-derived neurotrophic factor. And they have these local effects. If you shine it on your, your skin, it increases fibroblast activity, so you get more collagen growth, and that's why it has profound anti-aging and anti-wrinkling effects. Um, So wherever this light interacts with, it basically stimulates growth factors and regeneration of those cells. So hopefully, if you followed everything I just said, you understand that the the story of light goes, isn't just skin deep with, with vitamin D. It goes profoundly beyond um, vitamin D to all these other mechanisms that are having a huge impact on the expression of our genes and the regulation of uh, our cellular health and cellular energy production and, you know, neurotransmitter levels in the brain and so on in, in very profound ways. Light is a drug and we need to understand that light is a drug that, and it's, it's a nutrient um, that, that our cells need much like we need the right nutrients from food. We also need the right nutrients from the light we get in order for our cells to function properly. Yeah, I think a lot of people just listening to this saying, I just thought light was something I turn on so I don't bump into things at night at home. It's like you've opened up this big, yeah, I mean, wow, who would have known light does all this amazing ability for energy, immune system healing. What's your opinion on, you know, talk about in the morning, it's good to get light, 15, 20 minutes, but a lot of people hearing that go, yeah, I'll stick with my cup of coffee in the morning for 15, 20 minutes. What's your opinion on Java? Some say it's healthy, prevents disease, others say it causes disease, but it's a big go-to for energy what's your opinion yeah it's a tricky nuanced story so um first of all 
the there, there's a there's a number of studies. I mean, literally in the dozens, maybe hundreds at this point, showing that uh, coffee consumption uh, can help prevent or lower risk of numerous different diseases. There's there's research showing benefits in the context of preventing diabetes, helping to prevent diabetes or uh, heart disease, various kinds of cancer, uh, neuroprotective effects. There's there's unquestionably a variety of studies that show health benefits. However, and this is a very, very big however, the coffee is not is very far from all good. Okay. This is mm-hmm. probably one of the trickiest, most nuanced stories for people to understand because most compounds that we hear, things like what I just said, that it's linked with benefits in this system of the body and that system of the body and this disease and that disease, mm-hmm. we think, oh, this is a health food. It's, 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 you know, we should all consume this thing. It's this superfood that has amazing benefits. Right. Coffee also has benefits on short-term energy and brain function and even athletic performance. However, when you consume it daily, it creates negative neurotransmitter adaptations in the brain that ultimately cancel out the energy and mood-boosting effects from it. And this happens, so basically this is a drug tolerance, okay? So caffeine is a drug, and it has certain benefits, short-term benefits, on our mood and energy and, and cognitive function and physical function. However, within the span of two or three weeks of using it daily, those benefits basically go away for the, for the most part. So you, you cancel them out. And the way that this does this is because basically the way that caffeine works is it blocks a, a neurotransmitter in the brain called adenosine. Adenosine is a neurotransmitter that normally triggers you to be more tired or more sleepy. Okay, and the brain is always trying to maintain the right balance of sort of energy to tiredness, uh, you know, intense energy and stimulation versus being relaxed. So it's always it has this milieu of lots of different neurotransmitters, this cocktail of neurotransmitters that all have kind of different and opposing effects. um, And it's trying to balance those out. So the way that caffeine interacts with that system is it goes in and for a few hours it plugs up these adenosine receptors in the brain so adenosine can't get in by blocking this neurotransmitter that would otherwise be moving you towards being sleepier or lower energy by blocking that it creates an energizing stimulant effect Mm -hmm. okay and as i said that creates genuine benefits in the short term cognitive benefits energy benefits physical performance benefits sounds good Except Mm -hmm. when you do it every day, the brain basically says, hey, I'm being overstimulated. We have too much of the stimulating neurotransmitters. We're out of balance. We need to bring this system back into this proper balance. And the way that it does that is by actually increasing the amount of adenosine floating around in your brain and the number of adenosine receptors. It senses there's an adenosine deficiency So it increases the amount of adenosine and the sensitivity to adenosine. So what that does is, well, one effect is it makes it so uh, you need more caffeine over time to have the same level of boost. You build a a tolerance to it. But more importantly than that, what it does is when the caffeine is not in your system, you've now low, you've, you've increased the overall adenosine activity in the brain. So you've now lowered your baseline level of mood and energy. 
So that's why people wake up in the morning and need caffeine to get going. They need caffeine to switch yeah. their brain on and their body on, and they, they don't feel right without it. Right. That's not because – so the, the way that most people interpret that is caffeine gives me a boost. Caffeine is great. Coffee is good. I need my coffee. Okay, But what they don't realize is the only reason they need it to function is precisely because they use it regularly, <laughs> and they're, they're, they've now incurred negative neurotransmitter adaptations that have basically made them physically dependent on coffee just to function – and this is the big key – just to function at what used to be and what should be their normal level of function. So coffee isn't oh. actually giving them a genuine boost like they think it is. Oh. Coffee is just getting them back to what used to be their normal level of mood and, and, and energy. So it's actually lowering their... So, so their idea of being tired back then is much lower because of coffee. So they're just getting to where they used Correct. to be before a coffee. That's interesting. Yeah. What about, uh, you know, so coffee is yeah. probably not, not the best thing, as you said, but what about supplements? There's so many, like, uh, you know, herbal products, vitamins, energy drinks, sublinguals, all claiming they give us energy. Are there any supplements to get the RE seal of approval for energy? Oh, most definitely. Yeah, there's lots of supplements I like, lots of different compounds that I think are great. Um, I'm not a big fan of stimulants. You know, and, and for the reasons I just explained. So stimulants, whether it's caffeine or other kinds of stimulants, what and, and that's what most of the, you know, five-hour energy and all the different energy, monster energy and all these different um, drinks and pills and, and, and you know, energy supplements, quote-unquote, right. almost all of them are stimulant-based. Uh, and what stimulants do is they give you a short-term boost at a long-term cost. You, right. you basically... Um, you, you get energy today, but you pay for it tomorrow. That's ultimately how it, how it works. Um, and it's a really insidious process because you actually get physically dependent on the drug just to function normally, and, and you need more and more of it. So it, it's, it's, it's a really bad thing to start getting dependent on stimulants. Yeah. Now, if you use them very selectively, rare times only when you need them, let's say one ev once every two or three days and not more than that, uh, then you can get a genuine boost from them when you need it and not really pay a price for it. But if right. you start using it every day, then you're going to get a physical thing, dependence yeah. on that drug just to function normally. And would that so, apply with things that yeah, aren't so, stimulant, like, like ginseng or green tea? Would that apply or because that doesn't have the stimulant that's more natural? Well, so green tea has a little bit of caffeine, but also has some other really beneficial properties. Um, I, in general, I'm a bigger fan of something like matcha and green tea over coffee, which mm -hmm. it still does have some stimulant short-term benefits, um, but it's, it's more mild than coffee and tends not to cause the same degree of, of long-term negative neurotransmitter adaptations. Now, something like ginseng or rhodiola rosea, or acetyl-L-carnitine. Um, there's, there's many different compounds. There's also something called Robuvit, which is an extract of, um, of French oak wood extract. Um, right. there's, there's a number of other different herbal compounds and, and supplements that can be energizing, not necessarily in the way that a stimulant is, not in this immediate short-term, wow, I feel this energizing boost. Right but they can slowly and steadily basically do the opposite of what stimulants do. 
they can slowly and steadily over the course of weeks and months build you up to a higher level of baseline energy, whereas stimulants give you that immediate boost, but over time are taking your baseline energy down. So I'm a big fan of of certain herbal compounds like the ones I just mentioned, uh, as well as things like acetyl-alcarnitine and um, R-alpha-lipoic acid. And yeah, there's, there's a number of other great compounds. That's great. I know we talked about the importance of light. You gave all these benefits that lights have on us to help us energy, but it's not the case when we're sleeping. Lights can actually disturb us and ruin our energy. Share what, about sleep a little bit. I know we talked about in the day, but share what we need to do at night because I always believe if you don't have a good night, you can't have a good day. What's so important about lack of light at night? Yeah, great question. So first of all, um, we all know just on a very you know practical day-to-day simple observation, common sense observation level, if, if we're sleep deprived, if we didn't get enough sleep the night before, we had a bad night of sleep, uh, we're going to be more tired and more sleepy the mm-hmm. next day, right? So there's, there's obvious, very clear mechanisms by which lack of sleep causes an immediate next day decrease in energy levels and brain function and mood and resilience, by the way. You're going to be less tolerant to, to stressors. It, it, it impacts a number of different pathways to do that, um, but probably the, the biggest one is the, the effects on neurotransmitter levels. Right. Um, so we also know, the way I've broken this down is uh, there are actually nine different mechanisms by which circadian rhythm and sleep negatively impact energy production. Um, they, they can impact neurotransmitters, so they decrease dopamine and serotonin, uh, which are important neurotransmitters for making us feel energized, improving our mood, improving our ability to feel pleasure, improving our resilience and tolerance to stress Mm -hmm. uh, and motivation and drive, um, which is very much tied in with energy. And then they also negatively impact on something called GABA, which is a neurotransmitter that helps us kind of calm down and de-stress and switch our brain off and transition into sleep mode at night. Um, and they decrease this primary wakefulness neurotransmitter called orexin. Um, in addition to that, we know that there's this glymphatic system of the brain. This is a fairly recent scientific discovery, but uh, to make a long story short, basically at night while we sleep, the spaces in between brain cells actually open up and our brain pumps fluid containing all the built-up waste products uh, and waste products of the cells and, and toxic cellular byproducts it basically purges those from the brain each night while we sleep. So uh, if, you're sleep, if you're not sleeping enough or if your sleep quality is poor, that whole process of purging those toxic byproducts each night is going to be hindered. And the more you build up these toxic byproducts in the cells in your brain, uh, the more you're going to decrease brain function, probably predisposing to, almost certainly predisposing to, to neurological disease. And there's a variety of studies linking poor sleep and poor circadian rhythm to things like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's, um, mm-hmm. but also decrease brain function, mood, and energy levels. Um, another effect of, of these nine that I'll mention, I won't go into all of them, but one of the other ones that I'm sure your listeners probably now know about because it's becoming more common to talk about it is autophagy. So our cells literally uh, recycle damaged cell parts, you know, over the course of each day through normal cellular function, our cells get damaged and Mm -hmm. and dysfunctional. And so each night 
they're designed to go through this process of basically cleaning themselves out and, uh, you know, digesting and breaking down the, the worn out and damaged cell parts and rebuilding new healthy cell parts. And there's also a version of this called mitophagy, which is specific to the mitochondria, again, the cellular energy generators in our cells, mm-hmm. where those mitochondria are being cleaned out of the damaged, dysfunctional mitochondrial parts so that we can be, build healthy new mitochondria each night. So if your circadian rhythm is not strong, if your sleep is not deep, and if you're not sleeping enough, then you're not going to do that process very well. And eventually you're going to accumulate dysfunctional and damaged mitochondria. But here's the probably the, the, the biggest and most interesting fact. People know of melatonin. Everybody listening to this, I'm sure, has heard of melatonin. Everybody mm-hmm. has, thinks of melatonin as the sleep hormone. Here's what most people don't know about melatonin. It is the most potent protector of your mitochondria. And it's one of very few compounds that actually penetrates into the mitochondria. Most, most antioxidants, things like vitamin C and vitamin E and those, those types of things, can't penetrate into the mitochondria of the cell. Melatonin does, and it protects and stabilizes the mitochondria from damage. In addition, it also interacts with the internal antioxidant defense system of the mitochondria, so where we produce our most powerful internal antioxidants that protect our cells and our mitochondria from damage, things like glutathione, superoxide, dismutase, and catalase. Melatonin interacts with that system where it basically pumps that whole defense mechanism up. So consider this. Artificial light at night, typical room lighting, you know, just standard room lighting in your house with fluorescence or LEDs, suppresses melatonin levels in the evening before bed by over 70%. So what happens if every night, every you know week after week, year after year, for decades, we are chronically suppressing the level of our most powerful protector of our cellular energy generators by over 50 or 70%? Well, the net result of that is we fragilize our mitochondria, we weaken them, and they become much more susceptible to damage. And over time, we accumulate a lot more of these damaged and dysfunctional mitochondria that don't produce enough energy. And at the, the big picture level, at the macro level, we feel that when our mitochondria are not producing enough energy at the cellular level, we feel that as lack of energy at the you level, at the, you know, you as a person in life, we feel lack of energy and fatigue. So I would say sleep is uh, sleep is literally the most potent way of protecting and regenerating your mitochondria. And if you do not protect your sleep, you are going to accumulate damaged mitochondria. And by the way, one quick thing I'll add here is the mitochondria story is not just about how much energy you produce. We also know from a lot of research that's being accumulated, especially in the last five years, there's this huge focus on mitochondrial Uh, health and dysfunction in relationship to so many different chronic diseases. If people go online and they want to go on PubMed or Google Scholar and type in mitochondrial dysfunction, Parkinson's disease, Alzheimer's disease, um, cardiovascular disease, diabetes, um, almost any disease you can think of as now being linked to mitochondrial dysfunction. And we also know that mitochondrial dysfunction is a key driver of the aging process itself. Uh, So... 
protecting your, if I can get one message across to people listening, it is protect your mitochondrial health. Learn everything you can about how to improve your mitochondrial health, how to build them bigger and stronger, and how to protect them from damage. That is the single biggest thing you can do to protect yourself from disease, from cancer, from many other of the the most common chronic diseases, and live a long, healthy life with abundant energy. Fantastic. One thing I want to mention before we close out, uh, you when you're talking about lights in the room, uh, even a little dot that you have on your cable box, you want to cover that up. And interesting, I, I've done that. I have a little cloth that covered it up. And last night I was exhausted. I woke up at four in the morning. I couldn't sleep. And I look and the cloth fell. Just that little tiny itty bitty blue light <laughs> kept me up last night. Yeah. It really makes a difference, right? Yeah. Just something that tiny. It does. Yeah. I'll tell you when I go to hotels and, uh, you know, or stay at Airbnbs and things like that, if there's a smoke detector in the bedroom with a little green dot on it, um, it drives me crazy (laughs) and it absolutely disturbs my sleep. And you know what? There's actually research specifically on this, looking at even tiny amounts of light in the bedroom have been shown to dramatically increase the risk of depression and disturb, even if somebody thinks they slept fine, they've been shown to disturb brain function the very next day. So, uh, yeah, we know we we really want complete darkness in the bedroom. That's awesome. Well, fantastic. Thanks so much for energizing us with such insightful information. You are an encyclopedia of knowledge. I could do an entire six-hour show on this. It's just so fascinating. So we definitely want to get you back on the show again soon. And for more information on how you can increase your energy and supercharge your body, visit TheEnergyBlueprint.com. And while there, be sure and sign up for Ari's free newsletter so you can stay up to date with all the latest cutting-edge science to overcoming fatigue. If anyone's got the science, this guy has the science up to date. Get on this, get on his list. I'm on his list. I learned so much. Also, check out his Energy Blueprint podcast. He brings together some of the world's leading experts that share their knowledge on how to optimize your health. I had the honor of being a guest on his show. And you can also follow Ari on Facebook at The Energy Blueprint. And for my daily Facebook post, I'm at Dr. David Friedman. On Instagram, follow me at Dr. D. Friedman. If you heard Ari share something today that would benefit somebody you know, send them a link to this podcast so they too can unlock the key to more energy and productivity. It's available at togoodhealthradio.com and radiomd.com and peruse our podcast library and share these segments with friends, family, coworkers, and on social media. This information is too important to keep to yourself. Sharing is caring. You can also subscribe to future podcasts at iHeartRadio and iTunes. More to come. Stay tuned, stay energized, and stay well.